we often make this verse about the totality of our words, our conversations or the books that are written. But what about each individual word? Each word matters. Our definitions, whether they're deep or shallow, they matter. So in this series, we've looked at our vocabulary as believers, whether it's words that we've stopped using altogether and and retired or words that we use again and again and again and again and again in our religious echo chamber where we never really pause to think, wait, what does this mean? When I say gospel or salvation to an unbeliever, how do I define it for them? And so we've looked at words like lament, how we rarely speak of this word anymore, and it's given us a shallow definition of prayer and a shallow practice. We've looked at how we don't really use the word liturgy anymore in our religious circle, and that's given us a shallow definition of worship, a compartmentalized definition of worship. Or last week, how our materialistic view of poverty and definition of poverty hurts us both with our stewardship and our generosity. But you can podcast all of those. But if you go back to the very first sermon of this series, some time ago, we looked at two massive surveys. And one was done with uh, looking at religious vocabulary from 1500 till now. Everything printed, everything online, and it found that in the last century, the last hundred years, basically our religious vocabulary has been cut in half. And then you stand that up next to other surveys that have shown in the last hundred years this decay of belief, whether it's attending church or reading the word or time in prayer, that both of them seemingly go hand in hand. And so we've looked at this quote by the poet Christian Wyman again and again in this series where he asks, does the decay of belief among educated people in the West precede the decay of language used to define and explore belief? Or do we sense the fire of belief fading in us only because the words are sodden with overuse and imprecision and will not burn? Put in simpler terms by the writer David Brooks, many adults hunger for meaning and goodness but lack a spiritual vocabulary to think things through. Now, praise God that we have God's word, right, where we can go for understanding, where we can go to read and and put words back into our religious vocabulary by opening up God's word for ourselves. And tonight I want to open up to John chapter 6. We're going to be in John chapter 6 starting in verse 60. But I want to give some context because here in John chapter 6, Jesus is at the time in his ministry where he is being followed by massive crowds. He's got a small stadium of people basically following him wherever he goes. Thousands of people. We know this because right before this, he he multiplies the bread to feed thousands upon thousands of people. And so these people are amazed because of the miracles, because never has anybody spoken with this much authority. And again, he's, he's healing people by touching the blind and they can see he's touching lepers and they're cleansed. And again, he's just multiplied food for these thousands of people. All these miracles, there's an electricity surrounding Jesus. There's a buzz surrounding Jesus. He's like trending on every social media platform. Everybody's talking about Jesus. People are flocking to where he is. And so in John chapter 6, he starts speaking. We should realize that in this moment, he could have given, right, a speech that would have rallied these people, stirred them up into a frenzy. He could have started a revolution, But instead, he starts speaking in John 6, and he references himself as the bread of life that's come down from heaven. And it says that people were offended. Because you got people that are like, came down from heaven? 
Jesus, you, you came out of Nazareth. Like, Joseph's your daddy. My cousin went to grade school with you. Come down from, what are you talking about, come down from heaven? And it says in John that the more he spoke, the more confused and offended everyone became. Then he drops this cherry on top. Right at the end of this uh, speech he gives, sermon he gives, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you won't have life. Imagine being there in the crowd. Like, excuse me? <laughs> What is this, cannibalism? What kind of cult did we just join, right? I'm cool with you raising the dead, but this is like the walking dead at this point. We're talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. What are you talking about? And it says in John 6, 60, that after he said this, many of his disciples, the Bible calls these people disciples, said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? So they don't accept it. They reject it. You know, in 10 years, almost 10 years of pastoring, I've probably preached hundreds of sermons. I've never preached to thousands of people, but I can also say I've never preached a sermon where thousands of people just walked out, right, angry, left the church. They were shook in their belief, right? You may think at times, God, I've, I've been rejected, right? I, I feel rejected or persecuted. Jesus understands. In this moment, thousands reject him, walk away. And here we get what I've heard called the saddest words in the Bible, where it says, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Another translation says they never walked with him again. Never. They left forever. Never came back. They walked away from eternal life. God in the flesh. You think about all the historic events that were right around the corner and they turned around and went home. The course of history was about to change. And they left because they were confounded. They were confused. And then it says in chapter 6, verses 67 through 69, that Jesus turned to the 12 and he asked, Are you also going to leave? And Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. You know, Jesus is teaching here. It is mysterious. It isn't clear. It's kind of confusing to read through John 6, but the 12 show real faith by sticking around even when things don't make sense. We don't understand everything, but we understand enough to know that you have the words of life, and we're not going to leave. You know, there's a similar account some thousands of years before this and hundreds of pages to the left in your Bible. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 29 where Moses, he's outlined the instructions for Israel as they're about to enter into a covenant with God. And it's a little confusing reading Deuteronomy 29 because here's, here's what Moses outlines for them. You're about to enter a covenant with God, but you don't have the heart or will to keep this covenant. But God's going to be gracious anyways and make you his people, but don't take this gracious kindness for weakness, thinking you can walk in sin. And then finally, at the very end, like this bow on top, he says, hey, judgment is going to come. So you hear all this, and you're thinking, pause. And you could almost hear the disciples in John 6. This is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept this? But then there's a powerful verse in Deuteronomy 29, probably the most powerful verse in Deuteronomy, and I believe it's, it's a key verse in the Bible. It's Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, where it says, the Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We aren't accountable for them, but we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms 
of these instructions. You know, this verse has always been helpful for me in my walk as I follow Christ because the thought is, look, God doesn't give us every answer we want. God doesn't tell us everything that we want the answer to, but he gives us enough to show us how we're called to live and how we're called to follow him. I have all I need, and I better build my life on it because I'm eternally accountable for what I do with God, what he has revealed in Scripture. But still, if we're honest in our reading of Scripture and in our following of Christ in our lives as we grapple with just what happens in life and circumstances like we were talking about in worship, there are times where we feel like those in John 6. This is hard to understand. Like the Trinity, period. (laughs) The book of Revelation. The second half, like we love Daniel and the lion's den. Have you ever read the second half of Daniel? It's, It's hard to figure out. It's mysterious. Or it's just in life. How does God's sovereignty and our free will coexist? Like, I don't get it. Or how does God's goodness and suffering coexist? I don't like it. And we can get offended. Why does God allow this? Why does God do that? Some don't accept it. So like the disciples in John 6, they reject it. They live out some of the, again, the saddest words in Scripture. They stop following. But I want to look at three words tonight that are helpful as we follow Jesus. So the saddest words spoken in Scripture will never be spoken about us. And the first is mystery. Mystery. So the definition of a mystery is something that is difficult or impossible to understand or explain. Difficult or impossible to understand or explain. So Jesus' teaching in John 6 came off as mysterious. And we like mystery as a genre, right? We love, Steph loves Law and Order SVU, right? Like Sherlock Holmes. What are some other mysteries? Uh, Whatever. But these plots, by the end, the mystery is solved. Like, we like that. But actual mysteries? Our culture doesn't like mystery. We're a product of the Enlightenment era, where the cry of the Enlightenment was, we can figure it out. Like, give us enough time, we can know what's going on, and we can understand things. Right? And as a result, we love to label things, good or bad, black or white, and we don't like to recognize complex gray areas. I mean, especially with Scripture. We want clarity. We want certainty. We want to know what we stand for. We want to know what to expect. But you know, the revivalist John Wesley once said of Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the ways and judgments of God are oftentimes hidden from us, unsearchable by our shallow capacities, and matter for our adoration, not our inquiry. I love that wording, matters for adoration, not inquiry. Sometimes God is just so big that you got to be quiet and stand in awe. It's like the end of Job. He has question after question after question. God shows up, and he's like, huh, I got nothing to say. He's that big. You know, Albert Einstein once said, he who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. You know, when you're a kid or maybe you've got kids, they're enchanted by everything. Like, we brought Raj home, and he was He's still mesmerized by ceiling fans, right? You lay him on the ground, he just, ceiling fans are amazing, clouds are amazing, birds flying, it's like blows his mind, planes in the sky, everything is wonder, everything is mystery. I'm sure once he can talk, one day he'll be asking crazy questions like, how does this happen? The psychiatrist and author Smiley Blanton once said that a sense of curiosity is nature's original school of education. But I would take it further than that. A sense of mystery and a sense of curiosity and wonder, it's, it's also the original school of, of worship. When mystery sparks awe and wonder, it's wonder 
that can usher us into worship. I love, I didn't even know that we were going to be singing uh, Raise a Hallelujah, where it talks about singing a hallelujah even in the presence of mystery. Right? When you can just throw your hands up in awe and say, I don't understand, that can draw you into worship. That's why there's literally hundreds of commands in Scripture to behold. Pause. Take a break from the busyness of life and our impulse to evaluate and critique everything and just stand back and say, God, you are so big, you are so good, and just flow right into worship. You know, in Romans, Paul, there's almost sections to Romans, and and right around Romans 11, he's outlining the the plan for salvation, the history of salvation, and God's plan to, to save humanity. And he comes out of it with like this outburst of amazement, awe, and worship. It's like a, a pause to behold. He says in Romans 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. You know, if we try to trace the path of God's truth so often, it will end in mystery. As the message version of 11, 13 reads, excuse me, Romans eleven thirty three 33 reads, it's way over our heads, we'll never figure it out. You know, this is this gesture of theological humility from Paul, who's really one of the greatest theological minds in history. <laughs> and he's saying, we may never know. It's like Thomas Aquinas once said, the highest knowledge of God is to know that we don't know God. <laughs> this idea that embracing mystery having the theological humility to admit that we don't know everything about God and everything we'll ever need to know is actually a sign of knowledge in and of itself, and it's a sign of maturity. See, mystery doesn't just produce worship. Mystery also produces a healthy humility. We're all trying to plumb the depths of God's character and his truth. But again, the influence of enlightenment means that we want to dial in every prophecy, every verse, and every page of Scripture We can get so caught up in the obscure that we miss the obvious. Or we can get so caught up in the mystery that we lose grip on what's mandatory. For instance, again, the book of Revelation. You read the book of Revelation, and we can can guess to what it means. We can speculate, right? We can uh, give it our best educated guess what all of Revelations means, that prophecy in Scripture, which is meaningful. It's the word of God. But we all want to be on the planning committee. Like we all want the, we want to be in on the details of God's return, even though Jesus said, even I don't know, only God the Father knows when he's coming back. When we're supposed to be on the welcoming committee, right? We're supposed to make sure that when he does return, more and more people are praising him because we've been introducing people to his grace and his church and his kingdom and his love. Again, we can get so caught up in the mystery that we forget what's mandatory, that that we're supposed to be walking out the Great Commission. We're not responsible for the planning. God doesn't need help with that. He's got that figured out. He's got it under control. What we are responsible for is the welcoming, welcoming people into the kingdom before his return. Again, like Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, there are obvious mandatory things that God has revealed, and we're supposed to be faithful to obey. Our duty is to obey what God has made plain, and everything else, all the mysteries, they're his responsibility, and we trust in him in faith. That's faith, to trust that he is a good father who's sovereign, who's going to work everything for good, and he's perfect in all our ways. His ways, excuse me. <laughs> you know, it runs counter to the culture, but we should embrace mystery. Because, again, one, it breeds a healthy humility, and two, 
It produces the wonder that produces worship. Dennis Covington, my favorite quote on mystery, is that mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. Again, it's not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. Do you know the second word tonight that I want to look at that will help keep us from being a part of that crowd that would walk away or be a part of the saddest words in Scripture? And that word is doubt. Doubt. Because let's be honest. If we can't be certain of God's mysteries, the result is we will have some doubts. The very definition of doubt is to be uncertain of something. So if we can't be certain about every detail of God, there's naturally going to be some doubts. And I'm convinced, like, doubt is the, the quicksand of our faith walk. You know, like everybody jokes, quicksand when we were kids, like, what is it, never-ending story, uh, Princess Bride. All these movies had me convinced that quicksand was going to be, like, a, a, a horrible issue as an adult. Like, I would have to take the James River Bridge instead of the tunnel because some quicksand got in the tunnel and would have swallowed my car alive. Like, as a kid, quicksand is in all the cartoons and movies, and I was convinced, and we, it had us all convinced that one day – you're going to run into quicksand, and it's terrifying, right? You have nightmares going to, going to sleep about quicksand as a kid. I'm probably never going to see quicksand in my life, right? In a similar way, we're often raised to fear doubt. You know, like we think we'll get stuck and drown in it. It's going to be a massive problem. But what if I told you doubt in and of itself isn't bad? You know, sure, doubt can be paralyzing. It can be like spiritual quicksand. Like I've had, as a pastor, Half the time that somebody comes up to me and says, I'm wrestling with fill in the blank, half the time they're not wrestling. They're pinned. <laughs> they're paralyzed. They're in this quicksand of questions and doubt, but they've stopped wrestling and they're stuck. Why do we get stuck? Again, because we stop wrestling. Why do we stop wrestling? Because we're either dazed by distraction or overwhelmed with busyness. The structure and pace of our lives in our culture is not built for us to pause and question and wonder and examine our doubts and wrestle with it and wrestle with God. The famous author Simon Sinek, who's written a lot of bestsellers, he said, I'm always nervous about people who aren't curious about anything in the world. You know, if I could remix that for the church, I'd say I'm concerned with any Christian who isn't confused or at least a little curious about some aspect of worshiping an eternal, infinite God. Like, let me say this. If you don't have questions about God, that should make you uncomfortable. You're probably not reading enough of this right here. We shouldn't fear questions. We should be full of them. It was Tim Keller, the pastor and author, who said that a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. Right? Doubt isn't the enemy of faith. There's a lack of doubt that can be harmful to our faith. But again, we're taught in church culture to have a fear of doubts. But doubt by definition, again, is feeling uncertain about something. At its base, it is being uncertain about something. So at its base, it's neither good nor bad. It's neutral. It's simply a lack of knowledge that can go either way. But you know what's, what would be bad is if we as finite people think we have a firm grasp on an infinite God. Because we'd for sure be wrong, right? Questions can be sincere and asking them can be an act of faith. An act of engaging and wrestling with God. And so many people stop growing because they've stopped wrestling. Stopped wrestling with their thoughts about God and their questions about God. It's in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2, where it says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Don't suppress your doubts thinking they're bad. Get to searching. 
You know, we shouldn't fear questions. We should be full of them. Asking them, again, is an act of faith that can feed our faith. You know, but as doubt and uncertainty in life fuels questions, or even reading scripture can fuel questions, I often, I've been reading through Job, right? There's, there's 40 chapters of just asking questions and wrestling with this reality of suffering if there's a good God, right? You think you understand suffering until it punches you in, in the face, right? It's like the Mike Tyson quote. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Everybody thinks they, they understand how suffering works and how God can be good and they're still suffering, and then you start to walk through it. But I think of the lyric that one of my favorite songwriters, Dustin Kensrue, wrote inspired by Job, where he says, all that I have is questions. So much is veiled in mystery. You are yourself the answer, the only answer that I need. You know, sometimes in our wrestling with doubt, we don't get an answer, but we get God. Right? We engaged in wrestling, right, grappling with him, not letting go. It ends up in an embrace. You know, but as we lean into mystery and as we talk about doubt, I think it is important to consider just the word apologetics, the idea of apologetics, which by definition is reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something, typically a theory or religious doctrine. Apologetics is actively defending what God has revealed, right? The second half of Deuteronomy 29, 29, the truth that we're eternally accountable for. But arguing for truth in a culture where just a couple of years ago, the, the word of the year, according to the dictionary, was post-truth, that can get tricky, right? And sometimes the church tags along and dissing apologetics by saying you can't argue anyone into the kingdom or conversion is about the heart and not the mind. We need an apologetic for apologetics. You know, because the most important contribution of apologetics is that it raises the level of our critical thinking. Right? They ask, apologetics asks the hard questions. It seeks clear answers. It helps people engage with doubts. It helps people uh, engage and diss the half-truths that the enemy would use or untruths. And these are all good things. A greater confidence in the authority and reliability of Scripture is 100% a good thing. But where apologetics can eventually lead us astray is if we think we can have all the answers to all the mysteries in Scripture, that every mystery or biblical idea can be boiled down to a book with a title, Case 4, fill in the blank, right? But we like this. We like to have it all figured out. We like to have a manual and a surefire plan, but trying to drag everything in the Bible into full understanding according to reason, it's a trap because God is bigger. That's like trying to fit a planet under a microscope. It's just, it's not going to happen. He won't fit. You know, we need to be honest about what the Bible tells us and humble about what it doesn't. You know, we got to be honest about what the Bible tells us and reveals to us that we're called to be obedient to. But we have to be humble about what God leaves a mystery. What Deuteronomy 29, 29 would call his secrets. But you know, Paul the same man who humbly throws his hands up at the mysteries of God's plan in Romans 11 repeats one thing again and again in his letters to the church, that the mystery of God, it's Jesus Christ. Again and again, in Colossians 2.2, he says it clearly, that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, which is Christ. This is one of, again, many verses where he points to the mysteries of God present in Christ. And what's wild is we, we can know Christ, that Jesus says in John 17 that this is eternal life, to know Jesus Christ and the one who sent him. We get to know Jesus. 
the mystery of God. And Richard Rohr, the Franciscan friar, is on record as saying that the mysteries of God, they're not unknowable, but they're infinitely knowable. You know, an infinite God means infinite discovery. We think heaven's going to be boring. God is infinite and eternal. We're going to learn something new about him every day into eternity. Right? And this is the God that wants relationship with us. Where he, the greatest command he gives us is to love God with everything we are. You know, I once heard a, a poet say that love is concentrated wondering. It's focusing your wonder on somebody for the rest of your life. That's love. How do we concentrate our wonder on God? There's many ways, but certainly one of them is right here, the Bible. It should be the object of our concentration, of endless searching and concentrated wondering. It's where God reveals himself. It's where God reveals how he wants us to follow him. And we read John 6 that we open with and we think, yeah, I'm with, I'm with Peter, right? I'm going to follow you to the end of my days. I'm never going to stop following Jesus. We would echo his words where, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. Yet how many of us have given up on his word? The book that contains the word of God. Again, the stat that we've hit on again and again, that 80% of people that go to church on the weekend never open this outside of service. We don't actually go to the words of eternal life. The Bible, though, if you dig into it again and again and again, you're going to realize this isn't a textbook. What I mean is the answers aren't in the back. <laughs> and the more you read the Bible, it's as good at raising questions as it is giving answers. There will inevitably, again, be times in our walk where we throw our hands up like Christ's disciples in John 6 and say, this is hard to understand. But I never want to be, or I never want to have said of me what was said of that crowd, that he stopped following. He said it was too confusing, so he just stopped following altogether. You know, if I could have Thomas come up, too many of us stop growing because we stop wrestling or we stop searching. Searching. That's such a dangerous place to be because, again, we're eternally accountable for what God has made plain through his word. Deuteronomy 29, 29, we and our children are held accountable forever for what he's revealed. And I want to be able to stand before God on judgment day. And sure, we all have our pet questions, right? Why did you, like, why did you create beetles? Like, are guardian angels real? Like, is that a real thing? And can I meet mine? Or why do you allow suffering and chronic pain? Why? All these questions we have for God. But with all my questions, I want, to be able, I want the confession of my life to be that this is what you revealed to me, and I built my life on it. You gave me Jesus, your son on a cross, and I made him the foundation, and I built my life on his teachings and what you reveal in your word. You gave me the words of life, and I never turned from them even when I didn't fully understand. I never let what I don't understand keep me from obeying what I do understand. Or I never let what wasn't revealed for me to keep me from obeying what is revealed. So the question I'd ask tonight is, who are you in John 6? You know, I joked about quicksand, but maybe some of you feel stuck in spiritual quicksand, the spiritual variety. You've stopped following. Maybe you stopped growing, stopped praying, stopped reading scripture. Maybe you're stuck in the quicksand of doubt and questions. 
Maybe you feel stuck in the quicksand of, of just circumstances. Not even stuff you've done, but stuff that's happening to you. Quicksand of hurt. Quicksand of anxiety. Quicksand of all these questions, all these things. And you know, this, this afternoon I was praying, God, how do you want, how do you want worship to be set up? How, what do you want to do at the end of service? And I just sensed that he wanted me to share the beginning of Psalm 40, where it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, right, whatever quicksand we're in, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. You know, if you would say tonight, yeah, I'm, I feel stuck in my doubt. I feel stuck in my pain. I feel stuck in unforgiveness. I feel stuck in my, my job situation. I feel stuck in my faith. And man, as we stand and praise, let us also pray. The Hiltons are here. They'd love to pray for you. Steph and I are here. We'd love to pray for you. But if you're carrying a weight or you feel just dragged down into the mud, God doesn't want you to leave this place the same. Jesus would say, come to me, all you who are tired, all you who are weary, and lay that thing down. And he will lift you up and put you on solid rock. And if you're saying, hey, I'm good, I don't need prayer, I'm on solid rock, then let's stand and let's praise him for it. David says in Psalm 40, you, you put a new song in my mouth and a hymn of praise to God. So tonight as we stand and we close in worship, God, we give you our praise because you heard our cry. And you always hear our cry. You're a God who hears the cry of, of those who, who need you from Abel to the Israelites in Egypt and throughout Scripture. You hear our cry again and again and again. So we cry out to you in praise and worship. And God, if we need to, we cry out to you in prayer. Because we thank you that you're a good father. When we ask for bread, you don't give us a stone. When we ask for fish, you don't give us a snake. So God, we ask, we seek, we knock, we pursue you in this place. We thank you that you're a good father who sent your son. And I pray that each one of us, as we walk out of here tonight, we'd be able to say our feet are on the, the solid rock, that Jesus Christ is our foundation, and his words that give eternal life, that they are what we cling to and build with. Jesus, we thank you for the hope we have in you, and we praise you in this place. In Jesus' name. in my heart.